Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can also be found on that website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Reviews are always appreciated if they're nice. I guess you can review if they're not also. Um, but maybe, you know, think twice. Be our friends. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, and I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Coordinator and a physiotherapist himself at King Physiotherapy the physical th- Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. What's up, Jared? Hey, not much, Quinn. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for butchering my clinic's name. That's cool. <laughs> the physical therapy and physiotherapy still gets me sometimes. That's it. <laughs> we are also cool. joined by a very special guest, physical therapist, physical therapist, Stephanie Allen. Steph, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, guys. I'm pretty pumped. Yeah, we're excited. It's great to have you. So, Steph is a PT at Boston Physical Therapy and Wellness. And if you're not following her on social media, you should because she's got some great perspectives regarding the integration of strength and conditioning, the science of pain and rehab, which is why we needed to get her on the show. So, Steph, can you tell our six listeners what's led you to your current interests in the field? Absolutely. Um, I actually, I would say that the that most of it started after college. I did a residency. I stayed. I went to Ithaca College and stayed in Ithaca to do an ortho residency. I wasn't quite super confident as probably most students are when they leave school, and so. After the residency, they, my, uh, one of the questions we might get into, um, is I kind of had a three to five year plan and that had already gone off the rails after the residency when they didn't have a spot for me there. So I actually ended up doing travel PT for a couple of years. Um, had always had a little bit of an interest more so in sports in the athletic population, but wasn't a hundred percent sure if that's where I, I wanted to live. So, was doing travel PT, saw a lot of what I did and didn't want. Um, and then by the time I ended up here in Boston, I had really started to fall in love with sort of the integration of um, strength conditioning and outpatient PT, as well as as far as if I would put myself into a little bit of a niche or area of special interest, um, it was more so ACL rehab. Um, and so I've kind of been diving headfirst into that since I've been here. Um, but also a function of my colleagues and um, the wealth of strength coaches and clinicians and just schools in general in Boston, um, we have a pretty awesome team that we sort of keep each other on our toes and we talk a lot about, you know, biopsychosocial, pain science integration, but when biomechanics matters, all that kind of stuff, we call each other out all the time. So, yes, my personal interest is um, ACL and, and youth athletics more so, um, injury risk reduction, but we do kind of nerd out on a regular basis. 
Yeah, you guys have an amazing team there at Boston PT, and you've got a, a decent background or interest in running as well, don't you? Yeah, I actually, I've only really formally been strength training for probably two and a half, three years. Um, so as far as uh, training age for running, my training age is uh, much older for for that, and that's kind of been a really helpful thing for me because as I've learned more about strength training and used it with a lot of my patients, we also have a huge endurance population here in Boston, obviously. Um, so around this time of year, actually, we start to get an influx of runners that are trying to go into the marathon healthy. And it's been really helpful for me to be able to sit across from some of these, these runners or triathletes and say, you know, I can actually attest to strength training being a huge difference in my running and a huge difference in my um, injuries and lack thereof injuries since I've started doing that. So they can, at least in my experience thus far, they can really pick up on that confidence. Um, And so I would say that it has been extremely helpful to have that sort of as well as my base. Yeah, it's always an interesting conversation to tell a runner to run a little bit less and lift a little bit more and that'll actually make them better at running. Pretty amazing. Yeah. There's, you have to kind of go at that artfully sometimes. Totally. <laughs> so the, the format of this show is Q and a style. So we're doing another one of those episodes and we have a bunch of questions from the clinical athletic community and we're going to answer as many as we can, but just a quick disclaimer as always, some of the questions we receive are regarding very specific injuries, a few of which are always impossible or unsafe to answer via podcast. So we'd highly recommend you head over to the clinical athlete directory, find a, a provider in your area or any, you know, healthcare provider who's, who's close or email us at info at clinicalathlete.com and we can help try to point you in the right direction. But, you know, other questions that we get are a little bit more general as far as injury goes. So we'll, we always do our best to answer, but still kind of recommend you, you check out the directory or email us. And lastly, we always get way more questions than we can answer during any one show. So if we don't get to yours, there's a decent chance that we'll get to it on a future episode. But let's just jump right in. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Steph, we always make our guests go first. Wait. Do you <laughs> have the questions in front of you? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Throw one out there. All right. I actually would like to quickly touch, because this might take a, a minute or two on each of our parts, but I was actually speaking with one of my coworkers about this a couple of weeks ago. We, part of our uh, staff meetings weekly are sort of case studies and are people that we may be having some trouble with or cases. So this one I had thrown out to Jared, actually, and this is a good place for it. So she explained something along the lines of how do you manage Flash, what approach do you use with a uh, young, healthy, post-op ACL patient who wants to get back to moderate to high-level sport and is kind of expressing you a little bit, expressing urgency and, and a desire to push themselves and get back as quickly as possible, but at the same time, because their actions aren't necessarily matching up with the compliance, they're not necessarily kind of putting in their time and work with it. And then as you talk to them more, conversations uh, raise your suspicion that he or she has an underlying fear of reloading that knee and they're adamant about not showing weakness and that sometimes you're even getting a little defensive. So you're kind of in this 
rock and a hard place. I know that this is somewhat specific, but I think we can generalize it to maybe working with some young, anxious athletes that are saying they really, really want to do one thing, and then they're not necessarily holding up their end of the bargain, and it's a hard conversation to have. No, I think this is a great a great question, and I think it can be extrapolated to, to a lot of different types of patients and, and age, even age groups and levels. I think, you know, it sounds like ultimately the, the issue here is fear. And, and then within that, there is a subsequent block in communication because the person doesn't feel comfortable expressing that fear. And maybe, you know, maybe that, that that's something that can't be avoided, but I think sometimes in the beginning, if we can set expectations of the process as well as, as possible in the very, very beginning and say, you know, this is where we expect you to be at this point, or, or, um, this is maybe, maybe the flip side, because maybe we shouldn't, you know, put milestones in their head right off the bat. Cause if they don't hit them, then you're kind of setting them up for failure. But, you know, this is what we need to, to get to first before this. So maybe it's a criterion reference thing instead of a, a timeline, but, you know, set the stage right off the bat we can't do this before this and we're going to use these different tests. You know, if, if we're talking ACL, maybe it's hot testing, maybe it's some type of, uh, um, you know, left to right strength or effect affected to non-affected strength differences. We need to get up to this certain ratio from affected to non-affected before we can do this and this. So you kind of, you give them goals to reach. And then if they are not hitting those goals, and then are still expressing that urgency, you can kind of take a step back and say, Hey, listen, you know, we, we talked about this. We need to, we need to hit these milestones before we move on. And you can show them we're not, you know, we're not quite there yet. Um, and then maybe that's where the conversation can be had. You know, if there, is there anything on your end that we can do better? Uh, this is you talking to the patient, you know, kind of giving the patient the autonomy to run the show a little bit, or really what you're doing is you're just kind of, you're trying to guide them to expressing themselves ultimately, um, which can, you know, it can be a tough task, but I think to summarize my general thought on the, on the situation would be give them, give them the big picture and then be constantly kind of bringing the big picture back to their mind and giving them context to where they're at within that process, but do it in a way that is like the first time you did it, you know, you, you just kind of can, very patiently and calmly reiterate the process, reiterate the process. You're reassuring them, but you're also being pretty stern in that uh, we need to be here before we get there type of thing. And I think if that, if those points are constantly driven home, then, you know, maybe they're more apt to just kind of put their head down and, and do the work. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you want to chime in on that stuff? Yeah, I think, um, I think setting expectations in the beginning has been a huge thing for me because I feel like it's harder to go back and sort of either reconvince or re-get them to buy in uh, after a certain phase, after they might get sick of a certain um, phase of treatment or phase of returning sport. Um, so that's definitely huge. But I think that one thing that will be really helpful for this particular coworker and this patient is, like you said, I think continuing to take this, this stuff back and take the bigger picture because I think that the day-to-day sometimes, especially with a younger athlete, it's harder for them to see the big picture. So you might have to, I don't know if it's a maturity thing or not, but I think that that, that could be 
really useful. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, <clears throat> I, I was I was mulling over some thoughts to this question before, and you know, there's part of me that was leaning. I was wondering, you know, if there's anything sneaky that we could do to, to parse out, you know, whether in, in, there is in fact that mismatch between um, what the person's saying and what they think or how they feel. But I, I think that it's a better policy and probably yields better fruit to just level with them. And like you guys both said, to scope out and say like, hey, this is kind of where we are. This is what we're seeing in terms of, you know, the milestones that we've reached or haven't reached. What do you think about this whole thing? I know you're really motivated. Uh, what do you think, you know? have we missed anything? Is there anything that you think we should be doing that we haven't been doing? Um, you know, and, and try to just express your, I guess, concerns, but also in so doing, remind them that your priority is their, uh, you know, them doing well, you know, it's their well-being, um, and, and give them a chance to potentially open up. I mean, there's a chance, of course they don't, and that's, you know, their prerogative, but, um, it's, it can definitely be tough to navigate. I don't know that I've had that exact um, situation unfold, but there have been lots of times where it's been really necessary to, to pause and say, hey, okay, <clears throat> where are you at? Like, let's do a temperature check, you know? And um, sometimes we're, we're really looking at things differently. Other times we come to the conclusion that we're, you know, we are in fact in the same place. And then we get to reestablish the expectations for the next few weeks or months or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's the maturity thing is a very real issue when you're talking about adolescence and I, we're seeing like ACL reconstructions being done on younger and younger athletes. And so if you get a 12 year old in there, it's, you're not going to have a, you know, a great, an introspective conversation with them. And so as clinicians, then maybe we are then just looking at our interventions and saying, cause I think you know, in the question, it's subsequent conversations have raised your suspicion that he or she has an underlying fear of reloading the knee. That's kind of a subjective thing. It's what you're picking up within your conversation with the patient. But I also think that you could probably pick up that underlying fear of reloading by just watching them go through their exercises. You know, if you're progressing them from like in the initial phases, slower strength, slower tempos, more like closed chain stuff, you're, you're going to be able to see if, if they're putting force production into this, you know, the same way on each side, or you're going to be able to objectively see if they can lift as much as the other side, or if you start to do some depth drops or some single leg, uh, cutting things like that. I mean, you're going to visual, you're going to be able to observe them, not of, you know, avoiding loading that side. So I think you can pick that up there and then the conversation can then be had, you know, are you, this is what I'm seeing. Do you feel like you can push off that leg or do you feel like you you can land the same way on that side, you know, keep it simple. Let them answer the question. Um, if they say, yeah, 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 you know, blatantly just lying. But I think a lot of people, you know, if, if you, if it's obvious and you're picking it up and you ask them about it, I think that you'll start to, they'll start to kind of come and, and tell the truth a little bit. And then from that point, maybe it's just, you don't even have to have the conversation, just have them take a step back and, uh, you know, back to skilled loading and, and regress your exercises until, until they do get confidence. And from that point, it's just about constantly encouraging, reassuring, reassuring, constantly encouraging, give them the, you know, instill a confidence in them. Um, it, it's, it's tough, but I think this is a great question and, and, you know, stuff like that. It makes us all better clinicians. You guys have anything to add on that? 
No, that was good. Oh, yeah, very helpful. So the second one is, I'll read this one. It's how does your objective measurement differ from what they teach you in school? And in parentheses, it's like manual muscle testing, passive and active range of motion testing, mobilizations, these types of things, palpation testing. I'll, I'll take a stab at this in the beginning and I'll try not to babble on too long. Um, I think my assessments do differ a bit from, from what we learned in school in the sense that it's not this regimented manual muscle test or, or, you know, passive range of motion first then active range of motion, then manual muscle test and palpation is like checking off the boxes because as I've looked into more of the literature on special tests and the reliability of things like manual muscle testing and do the, and what the scores mean or what they don't mean. Do they matter? Do they not? I, I get the sense that those tests are not as uh, repeatable and objectable or objective as, as we want them to be. And, and especially the palpation testing is highly on pretty much any palpation study that I've seen, the reliability is pretty poor. And that goes for identifying, you know, trigger points or, or, uh, assessing joint mobility, like, like capsular restriction, those types of things, very like nebulous terms. I'm just not super impressed with the reliability and really the validity of even what we're looking for. So I, I, I do move joints around. I, I passively move joints. I, I usually pick. I usually uh, have the patient actively move the joint first. Just, you know, if they've got it active, I don't really see a need for me to passively move the joint around. Um, but I, I get them moving. I think it gives me as the clinician a mental representation of what I'm working with. You know, if somebody comes in with shoulder pain, I have them move the shoulders around just to kind of see what I'm working with, you know. It, Crazy. I know it's, it is, but I don't necessarily uh, have my goniometer, you know, in hand and, and measuring every single joint angle just because it doesn't necessarily tell me as much. Now, I will say this. I do, I do goni some things more as a, as a way to, sh to create buy-in and show the patient that, Hey, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Like post-op knee, yeah. look at that. We're, you know, 20 degrees more knee flexion than we had uh, two weeks ago. That's great. And, and, you know, it's just something to give to them. And it, and it shows me that things are moving in the right direction. I don't, we don't bill insurance here. So I think that would be another thing. I would probably use the goni more in that sense to, you know, make sure I'm getting reimbursed and that type of thing. So that's another conversation. But in regards to things like manual muscle testing, the scales, you know, it's all about what if another clinician came in and they should be able to repeat all the testing that I test. So what if somebody who has different strength levels than me versus this athlete, you know, a four out of five manual muscle test of shoulder flexion may be different when I'm testing it versus somebody else, they may rate them differently. So a manual muscle test in its objective sense doesn't give me a whole lot of information. I do press and pull and, you know, do, I guess I manually muscle test movements, but it's more to give me a general picture of how sensitized or how reactive what they have is going on, how fearful they are to creating force. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I would rather have a handheld dynamometer for all those testing. Sometimes I do that to objectify those tests as well. But, you know, if I really want to test strength, I usually just have them lift weights. Um, so I, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, what do you guys think about this? I'll jump in. So I've, I've got a very similar philosophy to you there. I mean, I think that I've moved away from special tests for the same reason that I don't think that they're 
well, the research would, would show that they're not all that special after all. Um, and, and I think that if we've gotten, if I've gotten a good thorough subjective, um, in terms of what's gone on and if that any treatments, you know, whether that was helpful or not, all those things, then I just want to see them move and, and how I structured the assessment is going to depend a lot on what the situation is and what the person cares about. So, you know, I've had elderly people come in, they just want to be able to garden, you know, so we'll, we'll go through some active range, you know, we'll see if they can get into a crouch, if they can get up off of a stool or off of a low chair, stuff like that. And then I've had, um, runners who just want to be able to run better. So we're going to look at them running, um, or weightlifters, you know, powerlifters, we're going to get them squatting and benching or, or doing whatever seems to be the issue. And then, yeah, I tend to like to, to focus on active range first. I might, I'll probably do some passive range too. I like it, especially in cases of say tendinopathy or something where someone's got a painful shoulder or joint and they can only move it so far on their own. And then I get them to lie down, get them relaxed and like, Oh, Hey, look, your shoulder, your shoulder can move this far. And it's, it doesn't hurt nearly as bad as when you did it. That tells us the joint is intact. There's something else going on that's keeping it sensitive. So just to, to show them they're not as broken as they might've thought they were and for manual muscle, manual muscle testing. I don't, use the grading system anymore. Like you said, Quinn, I'll use it to get a general sense of how strong they are. If there's a discrepancy between one side or the other, um, any apprehension to it. Um, if there's a reason to use a dynamometer, I'll, I'll use that too. And I'll also use a GANI primarily in post-op situations, just to let the surgeon know, Hey, we're here. And then we're moving forward. And also to show the patient that, Hey, we're, you know, we're, we're getting better. I was telling my student that, uh, it, there's a patient that I had not long ago who had a, a hand issue and we used the, the hand grip dynamometer on day one. And then it became kind of a game every time he came in to see if he was a little bit better. And like some days he wasn't and he knew that, but it was just really cool when he was. So yeah, I, I think that I've tried to focus or to mold my assessment a lot more based on the whys and does this matter for the patient or for me? And if the answer is no, then I'm probably not including it much unless no, no one less. Period. There. <laughs> Go for it, Steph. <laughs> um, I'm going to agree with you on that one, Jared. I think that my objective actually is highly based on the subjective. Um, and as far as using some of the um, traditionally objective testing, like strength testing, like uh, range of motion testing or goniometry, um, I would say a lot more often for me now it's, it's for buy-in um, or for sort of some sort of piece to the motivation puzzle. Um, and what I use more often, I think, for strength-based things, like you said, Quinn is actually having the most. But, you know, last week, the 20-pound dumbbells are really hard and those kinds of things. But I, I would be straight up lying to you if I told you that in the last, three years I've used like an actual like, okay, kick out into me and that's a four out of five because essentially it's funny to me that it's called an objective test. And I don't know, some people might be unhappy with me for saying this, but you know, it's called an objective test, but essentially it's subjective based on the test performer's strength. And that same tester might have a different level of strength a different day and perceive it differently. So the whole inter interrelated or interrater reliability stuff, um, they don't touch on that too much in school. Um, and then like, you know, special tests don't have a ton of 
um, specialness to them as far as accuracy and rolling it in and rolling out. Um, some are higher than others, I would say. Occasionally, I'll use them as part of um, the puzzle. Again, like I said, if it, if it, if it fits, but you know, something like a shoulder Hawkins Kennedy test, I, I do that and it hurts me. <laughs> and I don't have quote-unquote shoulder impingement. I've actually been telling some patients that I, I'm getting away from using some of the, the names of these diagnoses themselves. Um, because unless it's something where I feel like it is a super inflammatory situation, I'll use shoulder impingement for an example. You know, I, I will try to tell them if there's someone who's really upset or nervous about it, like in this position, technically, you know, the end range adduction internal rotation, um, I'm impinging my shoulder and this doesn't feel good. So like to have it as a diagnosis is sometimes I feel like it makes you or makes other people feel as though they have something wrong. They have, um, I don't know, for lack of better words, like a disease or something. Um, and it really, it's probably some cranky tendons. The same thing as if somebody would have, you know, I compare a lot of different body parts to other parts, but I know I'm digressing. Otherwise, I'm really just saying that, um, I, I don't use a ton of the actual manual muscle testing. I, based on subjective, what things piss it off, I, I will say that. And we will, you know, go through, cross off our red flags, and then we do those things. And if we can alter the way that they do them, so that even if it hurts a little bit less, or after we do some reps, it's not worse, or by next day, they return to baseline type thing, then I tell them I would like to, especially someone who's training for something or an athlete doing something, I'll say this amount of pain with some muscle soreness is not, not that big of a deal, like, we're going to try and progress this. And I would say my version of manual muscle testing is kind of that, um, keeping track of, of their loading and what they can tolerate. Beautiful. Yeah. The impingement thing is funny, isn't it? It's, like, it's a word. It's, it's a, it's a position. I, I make a joke. Right, it's like exactly. every time, every time I do a squat, I'm impinging both my hips. Every time yeah. I put my arm over my head, I'm impinging my shoulder, just like what you said. Staff, so it's not the position that's the problem. It was the dose of the position that was beyond your tissue's ability to cope. And that, and how do you figure that out? Well, you dig into their subjective, you, you know, like you, you figure out what the hell they were doing at the time at, that they were starting to feel their issues. And probably even more importantly, like leading up to that, because you know, sometimes those issues can have a latent effect. It's like the things build. So I, I completely agree with, with both of you. Um, I love the, the passive range of motion testing is more of just creating buy-in like the passive straight leg raise just, Hey, well, look, you do have plenty of hamstrings. <laughs> today. Well, it's not that or the functional, you know, functional testing, just being objectifying a variation of their goal activity. Like what you guys, mm -hmm. you know, that's, there's our strength testing right there. So that's, yeah, I love it. Um, Beauty. Jared, your turn. My turn. So this comes from Andy Chen at Embark Lifestyle. How do you guys apply acute to chronic workload ratio principles to barbell sports? So a uh, little plug, we had Tim Gabbett on the podcast a little while ago. That episode's in queue because he's going to be doing webinar for us next year. So we'll release that a little bit closer to the date. But um, for that. yeah, so, I mean, I am too. Tim's super like super smart, obviously, but also super, um, down to earth, just easy to get along with and cares a lot about making sure that, 
good information is being disseminated and, you know, helping people out. So, um, I don't think, and you guys can, can chime in if I'm off base or if I'm right, but I don't think that we have any, uh, data specific to barbell sports as of yet. It's been mostly field sport athletes, right? Um, so everything is kind of an inference. And so we're making best guesses right now until we've got some better evidence to, to inform that. But if, if it seems like an acute to chronic workload ratio issue, there's nothing crazy, no red flags, no big traumatic mechanism injury, and we can kind of rule those out comfortably, then uh, I like to look back at uh, an athlete's training log. So I'll do this when I'm coaching athletes in general. Um, and also if I'm seeing someone in clinic, I'll ask them, Hey, next time I see you bring your you know training log, if you have one and let's go back. Ugh. I don't know as far back as is relevant. Like I probably don't need to sift through an, a year's worth of training data, but um, maybe as, as far as is relevant in terms of the issue that they're currently faced with. So if, if their problem started a month ago, let's look at last month and the month before, maybe the month before that, just to get a feel for how things are. And I'm mostly interested in the movements that are most affected and other ones, other movements that are using those same body parts, because it's all going to generate some sort of stress on the affected um, body part. And then it's just some simple math, you know, kind of figuring out what's the, the average intensity, the average volume, uh, maybe some peak volume, peak intensities, that sort of thing. Um, and then figuring out, okay, we were working with these numbers before <clears throat> your issue started about here. This is the progression. So, and then any accounting for any other additional information, like you continue to train this way and this is how you felt while you did that. So then if it's a case of, let's say someone's been doing a lot and they haven't actually had a chance to let the body parts settle down, and then I'm probably slashing their, their volume or their intensity, uh, or both, depending on what seems to be the more, both, depending on what seems to be aggravating them the most. And it could be both, but it could be the case where they tell me, Hey, anytime that I squat over 405, like my, my knee bugs me, but anything under that's fine. I'm like, okay. So we're, we're going to avoid squatting over 405 for a little bit and try to see if we can get some good work done in this sort of range. Or maybe it's not intensity dependent. Maybe it's the case where any, anytime I do, you know, five by fives or five by sevens or whatever, like that, that brings on the symptoms. Okay. There may be more of a volume threshold there. And so we'll figure out what the more likely scenarios are. And there's nothing wrong. I don't think with changing both and, and undershooting. And again, this is a hypothetical situation where someone's not had a chance or not allowed themselves to settle down. So we want to give them that for a little bit of time and then start to gradually increase that over time too. And I don't know if I picked this up from anywhere, but I think a five to 10% um, increase in, in volume from week to week may be a good idea. I probably won't increase intensity that, that much, that fast. Um, and if you guys have any better resources uh, or references for that, let me know. But, um, and then it's, kind of tweaking based on how they respond. So if they're responding pretty well, then all right, let's go. I try to go for a linear progression as far as that's possible. Um, that's not always possible. So, um, that's fine. Then we take a few steps back and you kind of figure out <clears throat> what seems to be tolerated, what doesn't seem to be tolerated, but it, it comes down to, I think some simple math and, and combining that with your read on the situation based on the assessment. Um, if it's someone who hasn't, isn't in that sort of situation where they haven't let themselves settle, then, I mean, it's probably the case where they still have to reduce something, but maybe it doesn't have to be as drastic uh, of a, of a reduction. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think 
the, the, the question specifically, how do we apply the acute to chronic workload ratio to barbell sport athletes? I don't think we actually can directly because of what you said in the very beginning, Jared, which is that there is no data on barbell sport athletes currently. So just to take a step back from there, the acute to chronic workload ratio, if you're, for the listeners who are not familiar with that, you're essentially taking a microcycle of training, your most recent microcycle, and that is usually a week for most people just because that's a convenient thing with the calendar, but you know, any, anywhere from seven to 10 days. So your most recent microcycle over, and that's, the amount of work, whatever metric that you're using to track training load, it could be tonnage, sets times reps times weight. It could be uh, arbitrary units is what they refer to in the literature as the session RPEs times the minutes times duration. They get a, a number or they get a value there. And that's what they use for their AC ratios. Could be average intensity, absolute intensity, whatever metric, mileage, whatever metric you're using. So that metric of the most recent microcycle over a block of the past. So it could be the average of the past three weeks. It could be the average of the past four weeks, the average of the past five weeks, all have been used in studies. The limitation of barbell sport athletes, again, is that there is no zero data on that. The, the ratios that Tim Gabbett and others have found with AC ratios, like specific ratios, looking at injury risk have come from sports like rugby, Australian rules, football, uh, cricket, soccer so field sport athletes where they're tracking mostly practice time uh and that so that point can't be understated and they found a sweet spot you know of ratio of 0.8 to 1.3 seems to be a nice area where you're not doing too little to make yourself deconditioned and increasing risk you're not doing too much too soon increasing risk it's just right it's like that goldilocks analogy we don't have that ratio for barbell sport athletes and so you would need to just collect data on your own people and, and then, you know, retroactively kind of look back or prospectively create, you know, collect data and then look to see if people get hurt. And it's hard to control for that in your own gym. It's not a study. So what Tim, you know, we talked about that on the podcast is like, okay, well, what would be more valid? And it's just look at, if anything, look at their chronic work over time. So like AC ratio is all about preparation anyway. What are you doing now compared to what you have been prepared to do? And the big picture, no matter what, is to avoid acute spikes in either direction. So if you're going to triple your work this microcycle compared to the average of what you've done over the past four or five weeks, just know that you're increasing your risk. Just sign off on that. Don't be surprised if something happens. You Nothing may happen. You may come out scot-free and your performance goes up and that's great but just know that there there may be a cost to that if you're going to go on vacation for three weeks and you're decided that you're going to do absolutely nothing sign off on the fact that you may decondition and if you try to jump back right into training where you pick up where you left off you've now deconditioned you've leveled down and you're putting yourself at more risk most likely so just sign off on that that's a conversation that has to be had um, and then ultimately it's the athlete's decision you know, I, as far as the AC, there's another question. I don't know if it's here, but it was, you know, what do you want to see in the research? What new things do you want to see in, in future research? And for me, it's this, it's the AC ratios with barbell sport athletes. And we've got at our gym, lucky enough, we have like 85 weightlifting only members at the gym. And, uh, we're talking about collecting some data on them to see if we can get some some rough estimates just to see, cause I have no clue what those ratios will be. And, and like, what metric are you going to choose tonnage? Well, in weightlifting, it's about one rep maxes. So 
maybe absolute intensity is what you're looking at. You know, all these, there's a lot of questions, but, um, I think, I think big picture with AC ratios or just training load monitoring in general is that you're, you're looking for spikes either up or down and in the subjective, you can maybe find those. I call them, I refer to them as inflection points, you know, like what happened around the time that you started to feel your issues? Did you change programs? Did you start your 10 by 10 German squat volume at the same time that you were training for the Boston Marathon or the CrossFit Open, you know, uh, did you change coaches? Did you change jobs where your sleep was affected? Maybe your training didn't change at all, but your life changed and that's going to fill your stress bucket up as well. So it's like, uh, you're looking at, you're looking at the big picture here and, you know, don't be married to the, the specific AC ratio just yet because there, there again is none for barbell sport athletes. Steph, what do you think about all that? I'm actually really, this is an area again, I'm excited to learn more about, um, Jared sent me a bunch of resources. Thank you, Jared. Um, but what I think I've gotten most out of it thus far is, is yes, there's not, it, it might be a strength and a weakness in the system itself. I think that it is sort of adaptable to different sports, even though specifically barbell is not as well-defined as some of the field sports. Um, so I think that could, in my mind, end up being strength of it um, as they kind of play around with it being a little bit more objective. But I think that one of the things that I've used with some patients that are more um, powerlifters or, you know, not necessarily field or endurance sports athletes is talking about, you know, like Jared, when you said you have to sometimes regress a little bit or whatever. And if they're familiar with, with training loads a little bit, sometimes explaining to them that even though we're regressing, we're still contributing to building up the chronic load. And then that's going to make you a little bit more, I guess, adaptable or in, in the future, um, reducing your risk a little bit that way. Because sometimes people don't want to hear, okay, let's go back to this or let's, let's regress a little bit, especially, um, athletes that are working out like, you know, I want to reach 80% on RM for whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough because, like, we don't have all that data for barbell athletes. But I think just using some of the concepts for now as we're learning more about it um, can be helpful to reframe it for them, but also explain to them that we're using this mix of subjective, objective um, of a system to help progress them while decreasing their risk. You, you said it there. I was going to mention it if you didn't, but it's, it's hard to get that buy-in, you know, Hey, we're going to, we're going to pull back. And the person's like, no, that's, that's the opposite of what I want. And you have to sell them the fact like we, we need to do this so that you can be better. If anybody's not familiar, the uh, Instagram account frustrated strength coach is fantastic. Uh, and it reflects a lot of my life. Oh yeah. You should check that out. It reflects a lot of my life as a PT, as well as a strength coach. I've appreciated it more over the years, but, uh, but yeah, that buy-in's hard sometimes. Who's turn it? All right. I think it's the Steph. I think you're going to bring us home with one more question. Ali, well, okay. yeah, Ali, let's do, Hey Steph, can you do the, the residency one? Ah, neither, neither Jared or I have done a residency and you have. Right. Okay. So am I asking it and going for it? Yeah. First? Ask it answer it and then I'll give I'll give my thoughts my perspective <laughs> on as somebody who hasn't but still wants to okay cool um this one is from our girl Taylor Eckle 
Um, what's your advice for soon to be graduates? Oh, I'm sorry. Totally sorry. I read the wrong one. I do that all the time. You can do Taylor. You can do Taylor. <laughs> I mean, hi Taylor anyway, but, um, it's probably, <laughs> they probably, they probably sort of intertwine a little bit. Um, from Tom Waz three advice on doing a residency. Is it worth it? And if so, does it lead to better pay and better jobs? Um, I am going to be candid about this. I don't at all regret the residency that I did, um, for, a couple of reasons. The, the first and foremost best reason is that my mentor and the director of the program um, was very much so influenced by um, biopsychosocial and pain science concepts. So through everything biomedical I was learning to take BOCS, that stuff was sort of sprinkled in for me. Um, and I feel like that's a little bit of a unicorn of the situation because at least at the time that I did the residency, uh, 2014 now, you know, going on five years, that was not really, especially when I first got out of school, that was not something that we had in school or that really was um, commonly discussed or even considered um, outside of school. So for that reason um, and the people that I worked with and the mentorship that I got and all that I learned, even manual skills got better, but I wouldn't say that any of that got me the job that I have um, or had really much to do with with pay. Some places will up you just like teachers get a master's and they get an increase in some pay, um, but it's not anything astronomical. And I am not saying this to downplay residencies because for some people it's the right thing and it helps especially new grads with, with confidence in some areas. And if you have a really, really good mentor, um, you know, absolutely go for it. I just also, in the same breath, don't want students and new grads to feel as though it's something that they have to do to set themselves apart um, because you set yourself apart. Um, and that's not going to be done just by completing a year-long residency at, at a, you know, a, pre- a prestigious place or whatever. Um and it's definitely, like I said, I, I don't, I would not credit any residency for getting you your ideal job. I feel like that a lot of times comes from networking and really knowing your why and seeking out a place that is going to help you fulfill your why, get better all the time. Essentially, I, I picked where I'm at now because there wasn't, in my eyes, any feeling for growth both for myself and for the company. Um so I'm not sure if all of that makes sense, but not downplaying them. I would say do your research, do your homework, know your why before going in, and you're going to get out what you put into it. Um, and also know that it doesn't necessarily guarantee you a really happy uh, last, you know, your home or end goal job, um, and also doesn't necessarily guarantee you a different pay scale. No, I think that's extremely helpful. It's helpful for me, even like if pay is your like number one priority, it's probably not the reason to go into a residency in general. And obviously, you know, I don't think that was posed in the question. It's a, it's a valid, it's valid thought and concern. But to me, it was always about the benefit of residency was about the mentoring, like you said, and the deliberate practice, the, the deliberate clinical practice that you get and the feedback 
on that, like the rigorous feedback, you know, sometimes probably an uncomfortable, more rigorous than PT school, like you're constantly being evaluated. But I mean, that's a way to really, really build your skills and your confidence as a clinician. So I always thought that that was what I wanted to go into a residency for. Um, our staff, the professors at my physical therapy school, most of them actually encouraged us not to go into residency right away. Their thought was wait two, three years, get some clinical experience, then you will have more of a mental representation of practice. And then you can go into a residency and you'll have kind of be more well-rounded, be able to take the feedback a little bit better, have, you know, not be so overwhelmed with the rigor. The rebuttal to that was always once you're not a student anymore, it's real hard to go back and then be a student again and then to potentially take a pay cut. Uh, with the residency and time too, Steph. What are, so? What are your thoughts on somebody doing a residency right out of PT school, like just get it done versus waiting two or three years? Do you have any preference on that? Um, well, I do want to double check. Can you guys hear me? Okay, because my headphones died. Okay, yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Okay. Um, I think that looking back on it now, I I think there's definitely merit to working a year or two. Um, we talk about it sometimes at work and call it sort of getting reps in, um, and before honing in on certain areas of interest, skills, philosophy, whatever, literally just learning how to be a human with people, um, complex cases, um, you know, get some of those, like being in, in a high volume area, be in whatever, seek out some of your own mentors first. Um, because that's a hundred percent an option and you might end up coming up with a situation where you do want to hold off for another year or two, because you have basically an informal mentorship set up with either someone you work with or someone you've reached out to. Um, so I definitely, like I said, my, my situation was a little bit different than most, I think, but I also do think that even with that situation and the amazing mentor that I had, that I probably would have gotten a little more out of it on some other levels besides some of the actual skills and clinical reason or instead of just the skills more so on clinical reasoning um, and more so on some of the humaning stuff that uh, if I had waited a year or two. So that, that would be my advice now. Um, but like I said, if you've already been doing your homework, you, you know, the place, you know, who your mentor is going to be. It doesn't necessarily make it that that's the answer for everyone, but I, I, would still argue that for most there is some merit in getting some time under your belt with patients beforehand. What do you guys think about one more, since we started to kind of ask it anyway, it's Taylor's question about a five-year plan, which, which is great because Steph, in your intro, you mentioned how your five-year plan was a little bit off the rails at some point, right? So the question was, pull it up here. Um, what's your advice for soon to be graduates who are trying to make a five-year plan? And Steph, why don't you take a crack at that? Um, I, I laughed a little bit at that and I'll probably talk to Taylor later about it, but, um, I answered that exact question to a student at Ithaca when we went to go, um, speak a couple weekends ago, Zach and I, and it was funny because my entire presentation was on how you don't necessarily, basically for lack of it, you know, long story short, you don't have to have everything figured out. And likely the plan that you have in your head, if you have one, is not going to be how it goes. 
Um, so he said, he's like, you know, I, I am that student that has the five-year plan. Would you say I, I shouldn't like he was, I, I think I probably created an existential crisis for him there for him. <laughs> but essentially I, I would say it's not bad to have that plan coming from a, a planner, a type A person. But I think the bigger thing is to not necessarily be locked into how you're going to get from point A to point B. Um, because my entire five-year plan was completely flipped, but that's not always the case for people. You can be pretty confident about what your end point is, but I would say because we are human that it's very unlikely that it's going to take that linear path that you see each step, um, becoming and it could be great and it could be not so great and you could still get to the point that you want to get to. But I just think that not being married to every step along the way, you're going to be a lot happier in the process. Jared, you want to stab at that? Um, I think that's great. Uh, I, when I came out of, actually it wasn't so much coming out of PT school, it was coming out of undergrad. I had a, an idea as to how I wanted this to go. Um, and then, you know, the first roadblock was not getting into any PT school right off the bat. It's like, okay, damn, I guess I tossed a curveball, I got to roll with it. And then after that, it was more of a matter of, or I guess I became more okay with the idea of, I've got this general idea of where I want to go and started to expect, like you said, Steph, some, some curveballs, some things not going the way I planned. And then just kind of dealing with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd probably just echo the same sentiments where you, you, I think it, it's, I think it's necessary to know what you're about. Like you said before about the residency, you know, kind of know your why, know what you want, where you want to go. Um, but then also have some flexibility in terms of how you get there, <clears throat> recognize that things rarely go exactly according to plan. Um, and then when that does happen, or if it does happen, which is almost inevitable, um, it's not that it's not shaking you that much because you're kind of prepared for it. So, Quinn, anything? Yeah, um, I love what you guys are saying. I didn't make a five year plan and slacker, I, um, notorious <laughs> for just jumping in, just kind of doing stuff and then either picking up the pieces afterwards. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I actually graduated and I got my license almost exactly five years ago. It was, it was five years this August. And I think Steph, you graduated the same year, right? 13. Yeah. It'll be. Yeah. Yep. So here I am at the five year mark. And had you asked me five years ago that I would just be sitting here on a podcast with you two, I'd be like, what the, what? What's a podcast? <laughs> um, and so I guess the question would be, what is your plan? Uh, what What is the goal of the plan? Is the goal financial? Are you? Is it a five year financial plan? I think what happens is people their five year plans are too all encompassing. It's like they expect yeah. their five year plan to encompass they're going to be financially free, plus they're going to be in the the dream job, plus their dream house. Like they think that it's all going to happen together at the same time. And I think, first of all, you didn't go into physical therapy for financial freedom 
Like that, if that was your first, I mean, you could get there, obviously you could get there, but like, if that was your first thing, you're not going to PT school for that. Um, yeah. so I think you have to have separate plans. Like, do you have a five-year plan for financial freedom? Okay. That's separate from your PT career. That's you saving and investing and do, you know, all those types of things that are, that are separate. If now then you have a five-year plan for your professional life. Like what type of PT does that mean? Oh, I want to, you think like five-year plan, I want to own my own clinic. Not necessarily like what type of clinician do you want to be? You know, and that's harder to objectify. Um, I want to, my thing is just like, I just love to learn and I want to soak up as much knowledge as possible, but that's really hard to put a plan on. So maybe, maybe you don't have a five-year plan for like your clinical knowledge, but what you have are, weekly, monthly, and quarterly goals for something like that. Like I want to join a, uh, a, a research group or, you know, like something like that, like a, like a journal club where you're reading literature and you're going over articles, um, once a week, something like that. Or I have a goal to read this many books, or I have a goal to get this many mentoring hours per week or per quarter. Uh, I think that from a professional standpoint, maybe that's better than a five-year plan because gosh, there's just so much that can change in five years. It's and, and not just in your life, but like you also, your interests and what you believe. Like my, yeah. my mental representation of clinical practice five years ago is completely different than it is now. It, it's amazing. Yeah. And I expect it to be very different five years from now. And if it's not, it's because I got bored and stagnant. So I guess that would be my advice is, is figure out what exactly a five-year plan is for, and then maybe start to chunk that into shorter term goals to, to lead up to that. And you may find that the five-year plan is maybe not necessary or a little bit more nebulous. And now it's a year plan or a three-year plan. Um, yeah, that's what I got there coming from the guy who doesn't, doesn't make plans. So. <laughs> I probably just ruined people's lives. But well, no, you read a book. I'd buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I, when I decided to move to California, two weeks later, I was in a car driving to California. That's my car packed with as much shit as I could get into it. So that's, that is dedication. Well, it's right. a man who knows, knows what he wants again. Yeah. And then sleeping on somebody's couch for three months until I found an apartment out here. That was my life. But that's somebody was Chad Wesley Smith. I mean, that's a great couch. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's <laughs> um, you guys got any other thoughts on that? Not me. No, I dig it. It's a good question. Um, shoot. I think we'll, I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, Steph, maybe Jared, you can talk about this, but Steph's going to do a webinar for us. Absolutely. Uh, Steph, oh. we're looking at, it's February, right? That's what we agreed on? Yes. Beautiful. I want to tell the lovely listeners, all six of them again, what it's going to be about. <laughs> um, I was planning to do head more uh, ACL, but a little bit more into the psychological impact of injury and return to sport. Um, I think that's a little bit untapped and even in my own mind. So I think that it will be sort of function on two levels, a, a place that I want to learn and grow a little bit more, but also hopefully help to get the word out. Like I, again, I think it can be extrapolated to not just ACL. I think that 
the reason I'm going with that is my own interest, but also that there does seem to be a lot of um, attention surrounding that specific injury. So Beautiful. we got to get you back on the podcast before that webinar to talk about that. Would that be cool? I can do that in December. We, I'm actually, that's going to be my in-service for work. So, um, I think that I'm going to work a little smarter, not harder in that yeah, sense. Yeah. Keep, keep developing that. So yeah, we can talk about that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you? Um, we sort of all share usage of the Boston PT and Wellness Instagram page. That's just at Boston PT Wellness. Um, I'm a lot more comfortable on Instagram than um, other platforms, and that's just at stephallen.dpt. Um, Facebook, just Steph Allen. And um, yeah. Awesome. We look forward to that webinar. Got to get my ducks in a row for that one. <laughs> I'll have my popcorn ready. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jared. Thanks again. You're the man. My pleasure. And uh, well, you're kind. You're the man. You are the man. You're the man. <laughs> no, no, you. No, no you. No, you. <laughs> oh. All right. I'm ending this. I love you, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.